But the crystal clear thing is what happened the moment that we were about to be seen by a doctor. My name was called by the person working at the reception desk. My dad and I, we got up out of the cold, hard chairs in the waiting room of the emergency room, and we started to walk toward her. Now, the, the, the clearest, straightest path from point A to point B, it required us to walk right in front of the main doors to the emergency room. And so we're walking by those main doors, and just as we walked by those doors, a man, probably in his 20s, with a woman who was, she looked like she was probably his mother, they burst through the door into the ER. He wore jeans that were tattered and a tank top. He was clutching his arm close to his chest, and he had another shirt wrapped around his arm, but that shirt did not conceal the very visible six or eight inch long gash to his forearm, nor did it prevent him from spurting blood all over the ER and all over me. Now, until the day I die, I will be able to quote verbatim the words that he shouted to get the attention of the medical staff in that ER. I cannot repeat those words here. <laughs> it was not the first time that I heard the particular four-letter epitaph that he said on that evening, but I think it was the first time I felt the weight of that four-letter word, and it is burned in my memory. Well, as you might expect, when a drunk man who has punched his fist through a car window and lacerated his artery bursts into an ER, all of the doctors and nurses dropped everything that they were doing and they rushed to help him. Right? He did not have to wait in the waiting room like I did. They didn't ask him for insurance paperwork. They didn't check his military ID to ensure that he actually had access to the William Beaumont Army Medical Center. He didn't wait in line. He was rushed out of sight in order to receive the help that he needed. And then my dad and I, we sat back down and we waited. I stared at the blood, his blood, that was now on my shirt, while trying to calm my anxious, shallow breathing. And while we waited for those who were meeting his needs to then come and address mine. In the end, it was probably a pretty good lesson for a five or six-year-old. For one thing, I did keep better track of my inhaler after that. Just as important, I processed that night the fact that some needs are deeper than others, more urgent, more critical, more important. An asthma attack, it can be a big deal. A severed artery is a bigger deal. A good healer will always prioritize the latter over the former. A good healer will always meet the deepest need first. Have you brought to Jesus your deepest need? In Mark chapter 1, we have read about Jesus teaching with authority, healing with authority, casting out demons with authority. The authority of Jesus is a major theme in the early part of Mark's gospel. And what Mark is doing, rather than telling us Mark is showing us that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. As king, he has authority, all authority over heaven and over earth. What Mark chapter 2 will show us is that 
even though Jesus is this king with all authority in heaven on our earth, and even though he wields his kingly power to bless and to serve his people, not everyone is eager to receive Jesus as king. I hope to show you that. Let's look together at Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 this morning. Mark writes, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. Now, we probably don't often think of Jesus having a home, but according to these verses, at least during this time in Jesus's life and ministry, Capernaum was Jesus's home. We don't know if his family had moved there after they left Nazareth. We don't know if Jesus is just, you know, shacking up with Peter and John now. We we really aren't entirely sure, but Mark calls this home in Capernaum Jesus's home. Now, Jesus has already spent some time in Capernaum in Mark's gospel. It was in Capernaum where he was in the synagogue on Sabbath day teaching with authority. It was in Capernaum where he was in the synagogue on Sabbath day and he cast out an unclean spirit. And it was in Capernaum where the sick people just flocked to Jesus so thickly that Jesus actually had to leave because ministering to all those people was a distraction from his primary mission, which was to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. But now, Mark chapter 2, Jesus is back in Capernaum. And again, the, th- the crowds, they're thick around him. People are packed into the house where Jesus is staying. And Mark, he emphasizes there in verse 2, there was no more room, not even at the door. All of these people are here. Maybe they've come to hear Jesus preach. Maybe they're just kind of gripped by like the fear of missing out, and they want to be there when Jesus does the next big thing that he's going to do. Or maybe these are people who have real needs that they are hoping that Jesus can meet, needs for healing or for cleansing from an unclean spirit. But the point is, the house is packed, and Jesus is preaching. But then the sermon gets interrupted. Now, as a pastor, I've dealt with a share of interruptions to Sunday gatherings over the years. Some of those interruptions have been minor you know, a cell phone ringing during the prayer of illumination or a child fussing through the invitation. These things happen. They're not a big deal. Once or twice, even here at Life Church, we've had some interruptions that have been a little bit more memorable. We're just going to leave that as an if you know, you know sort of thing. None of those interruptions, though, have been near as memorable as the interruption that Jesus endures on this day. Look with me at verse 3. Mark says, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, a man who is paralyzed. And when they could not get near him, get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now in Palestine, in Jesus' time, Houses were normally constructed with just one story and a flat roof. The roof would be made from beams that were laid across the walls, resting on the walls of the house. And then between those beams would be a bunch of like sticks and reeds that were woven into a kind of thatch and laid on top of the rafters. On top of that thatch, there would be several inches of clay or mud that was 
packed down and, and flattened hard. Once dried, this mud, it became a very hard and very stable surface and roof for the house. Most homes in the time of Jesus, they would have stairs of some kind on the outside, not the inside of the house. That way that you could go up onto the roof um, because there you could receive guests or eat a meal or just get out in the fresh air on a hot summer day. And so the roof of a house, it really functioned almost like the deck of most houses today. Well, Mark tells us that four men, in order to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they broke through and removed a portion of the roof of Jesus' house. And then he describes them lowering their paralyzed friend on his bed through the hole in the roof. And so here when we're gathered, when a baby cries or a cell phone rings and I'm preaching, you know, I just tune it out and I power through. You probably do the same. But this right here, it's not the kind of interruption that you can ignore. And Jesus doesn't. Now, often when people teach and preach on this passage, they make the four men who are like going to all these lengths to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they make those four men the focus, right? They think about like the sacrifices these men have made in order to bring their friends to our Lord. They consider how bold they had to be, how they had to fight the crowds and climb up onto the roof and do the hard construction work or destruction work, really, of breaking a hole in that roof and the risk that's involved in angering Jesus and the rebuke they might receive from Jesus as their paralyzed friend is lowered down into the room and the sermon is interrupted. And certainly these dudes, I mean, they're committed, right? And that's commendable. And even in verse 5, Mark, he emphasizes their faith. I want you to see it. He doesn't emphasize the faith of the paralytic. He emphasizes the faith of the paralytic's friends. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But what I hope you'll see as we keep walking into this story is that there is so much more going on here than the faith or the courage of these four guys. In fact, to focus on them is to miss the point entirely. I think even Jesus makes that clear because though he sees their faith, he doesn't respond to them. He responds to the paralyzed man. And he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. You wonder how people would have reacted to that? I mean, these four guys or their paralyzed friend, how they might have reacted to Jesus saying that to him in that moment. I wonder if they thought that Jesus misunderstood what was going on, right? I mean, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't wonder if they might have thought, um, thanks, Jesus. I mean, that's great, but he's paralyzed, and we were really hoping you could do something about that. Don't you think they came with that kind of agenda, that kind of expectation? Don't you think that they received what Jesus does here as kind of a swing and a miss moment when instead of healing him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, these four guys, maybe they've known their friend for years, right? Maybe they've seen the sorrow and the suffering that he has endured as a paralytic. They've seen him reduced to the status of a beggar who's always relying on others for food and shelter, They've seen other people get uncomfortable around him as people are generally uncomfortable around somebody with a disability. Maybe they've seen people ignore him. And now they've come to Jesus and they're thinking, Jesus can help, right? He's healed other people. Maybe he can heal our friend. Maybe Jesus can meet his needs. And what does Jesus say? 
Son, your sins are forgiven. Now what Jesus is forcing everyone to deal with here is the fact that this man has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. Right? His physical suffering, his circumstances, they are not his biggest issue. He has a need that is bigger, deeper than his need for healing. His biggest, deepest issue is his sin. His biggest, deepest need is for something or someone to deal with his sin. And that's what Jesus offers him. Because Jesus has come to be the someone, to do the something, to deal with the problem of all of our sin. Jesus has come not to meet the needs that are on the surface, but to meet his deepest needs, our deepest needs. Now, as we think about that, it occurs to me that there are two things that we're really going to need to wrestle with before we see how this story moves forward. So first, I am sure that there are some of us in this room who will not feel like our biggest need is forgiveness from our sin. And that's true because most of us operate with a definition of sin that is that's too small or at least it's too reductionistic. Right? It doesn't acknowledge all that sin is. And so some of us, we've grown up hearing things like, sin means missing the mark. We've heard that God has a holy standard for how we live our lives, and that when we sin, we are falling short of that holy standard. We are missing the mark. And, and that is 100% true. But that understanding of sin can lead us to reduce what sin is to, to simply things that we do, or don't do. When in fact, the Bible teaches us that sin is a matter of the orientation of our hearts. We sin, therefore, when we live for something, anything, other than for the glory of God himself. We sin, therefore, when our hearts are aimed at something, anything other than God himself. Which is why we can never reduce sin simply to the things that we do and the things that we don't do. Because we can do a whole lot of good things, but with hearts that are aimed at many things other than God. I mean, process that. I can be doing that right now at this moment. Right? I can preach this sermon, which I think because you've shown up this morning, you would agree that preaching a sermon is a good thing. But I can do this thing that I'm doing in front of you for a whole host of really terrible and awful reasons. Right? I can bring lots of really broken and flawed motives to this good thing that I am doing, right? Maybe there's somebody out there who, you know, I've been arguing with them. I'm going to use my platform to like score some points in that argument. Maybe I'm just trying to impress you so that you'll think I'm really learned or articulate or moving as a speaker. Maybe I'm just dealing with all sorts of like guilt and shame in my own life. And I'm hoping that by serving God in such a public way, I can atone for my sins and deal with my guilt and deal with my shame. But see, the point is, I can do all of this that I'm doing, I can do it really well, right? I can convey the truth of God's word clearly. I can point to beautiful truths, and I can use beautiful words to do that. But I can do all of that for myself rather than for God himself. We could come up with countless wrong or sinful orientations of heart out of which I might preach these words that I'm preaching to you right now at this moment. Church, that's why we can't ever reduce sin merely to what we do or don't do. 
Right? Sin is rebellion against God by refusing to acknowledge him for who he is. Sin is ignoring God in the world that he has made. It is living without reference to him by saying, I'm going to decide how I live my life, and I'm going to live my life for whatever I want to live my life for. That is the issue that Jesus says is our deepest problem, our deepest need. Now, second, some of us, we won't feel like sin is our biggest problem simply because, well, frankly, our culture has told us otherwise for so long. Right? Our culture has molded us and shaped us. It's written the computer programming that is the operating system that we live out. And one of the ways that our culture has programmed us is to think that our problems don't come from inside of us. Our culture has taught us to think that our problems come from outside of us. Maybe from the way we were raised. Maybe from the education we received. Maybe from something that happened to us a long, long time ago. Right? Our culture tells us that our biggest problems are caused by other people and by our circumstances. Our culture tells us that our biggest problems originate outside of us and never inside of us. But can I just point out, if, if that's your way of thinking, can I point out to you how liberating it is to realize that your biggest problem is you and not something or someone else? And this is incredibly good news. It's actually bad news, but it's bad news that forms good news. Because it is ironically empowering to come to grips with the fact that your biggest issue is you, your sinful heart, and not something or someone else. Because in the end, you can't be guaranteed that you will ever be able to change something else or someone else. In the end, you can't be guaranteed that you will have any power over what is outside of you. You can't be guaranteed that you will be able to heal what is external. But if your biggest problem is internal, then you have hope. So, I mean, just think about it for a minute. If your biggest problem in life is your spouse, there's no guarantee that you can change your spouse. If your biggest problem in life is your children or your boss or your job or some physical affliction like paralysis, there's no guarantee that we can do anything about any of that. So at the end of the day, good luck. You might be able to fix your biggest problem. You might not. In the end, it's not really up to you. You don't have the power to do it. You're helpless. But if your biggest problem is actually your sinful response to your circumstances, your sinful reaction to God and to his purposes for your life, well, now we have hope. Because Jesus has done something about our sin problem. He has met our deepest need. That's what he came to do. Do you see how liberating and empowering it is to come to grips with what your deepest need truly is? Have you brought to Jesus your deepest need? Jesus tells this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And then some people lose their minds. We're about to see that a lot in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 6 tells us about these guys. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so apparently these religious leaders, they've been sitting in the house listening to Jesus preach, 
And now they've heard something that has caused their alarm bells to start ringing. And so they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. That means showing contempt or irreverence towards God. Because Jesus has just claimed to do something that only God can do. They think to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are totally right. Imagine that you're serving next door in Life Kids on a Sunday morning. I would commend that ministry to you, by the way. The Lord has blessed Life Church with just tons of young families, and He has blessed the young families of Life Church with tons of young children, which means that one of the greatest privileges that we have to steward, one of the greatest responsibilities that God has entrusted to us, is all of the really short people over next door on a Sunday morning. And so, Man, I would encourage you to consider serving alongside us as we minister to the young children of our church. But just for the sake of argument, like let's imagine that we're all already over there serving in Life Kids on a Sunday morning. Let's imagine that you are in Roots. That's our classroom for three-year-olds on Sundays. And as you're in Roots, you are watching young Danny and young Jimmy and young Tommy play with the Paw Patrol Tower. I have it on good authority, by the way, that the Paw Patrol Tower is the most popular toy in the Roots classroom on a Sunday morning. Suddenly, out of nowhere, young Danny punches young Jimmy in the face, and then he grabs Rubble, the construction dog, from him. I mean, like, really punches him. There's blood blood everywhere, tears everywhere. It's a thing. And then imagine that young Tommy goes up to young Danny, and he says, Danny, I forgive you for punching Jimmy in the face and for stealing Rubble the dog from him. It's all right. It's over. Let's move on. Now, what is Jimmy going to say to that once his meltdown is over and once his bloodied face has been bandaged? Well, if he's especially mature and emotionally self-aware, which most three-year-olds aren't, I will admit, but let's say, again, for the sake of imagination, that he is, once he's calmed down from this incident, he's going to say, Tommy... You can't forgive Danny. Only I can do that. Danny punched me. He stole that toy from me. I'm the only one who can forgive his sins. You see, what imaginary Jimmy understands is that the only one who can forgive a sin is the one who has been sinned against. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, what he's really saying to this paralyzed man is, Your sins have been against me, and I forgive you. Now, the only one who can legitimately and genuinely say that to any human being is the creator of that human being. It's God himself. And these religious dudes who are sitting there listening to Jesus preach, they get this. That's why they freak out when Jesus forgives this man, and then Jesus actually makes it even more interesting. Look at verse 8. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. I'm not even going to touch that this morning. The fact that Jesus knows the wicked things that these guys are thinking, but he does. Perceiving this, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately he picked up his bed and went out before them all, 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. For 20 centuries now, people have puzzled over the rhetorical question that Jesus asks here. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which is easier? Now, we might think that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one in that moment can test whether or not this dude's sins have been forgiven, right? There's no way to prove one way or another that Jesus actually had the authority and the power to forgive this man's sins. But on the other hand, if Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk, and then he didn't heal the paralytic, well, everyone would know that. So to us, it might seem like it's easier for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. But on the other hand, consider what it cost Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Because when he said that, everyone knew he was claiming to be God. Everyone knew that he was claiming to have the authority to forgive sins, authority that belonged to God alone. Jesus actually further clarifies that claim in this passage, by the way, when he calls himself the Son of Man in verse 10. Sometimes people think that when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's contrasting that with Son of God. And so when he calls himself the Son of God, he's claiming to be divine. And when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's claiming to be human. That's not what Jesus means when he calls himself the Son of Man. And he calls himself the Son of Man a ton of times, like 80 times in the Gospels, by the way. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's drawing from Old Testament prophecies, especially in places like Daniel chapter 7, where God promises that the Son of Man will receive from the Ancient of Days the power to judge the living and the dead, that the Son of Man will come from the heavens surrounded by light and by glory, and he will be the just judge of the universe. And so Jesus here, he's not merely claiming to be man. He's claiming to be the divine judge, the one who has true authority in heaven and on earth to forgive sins. I mean, think about what it cost Jesus to make that claim. Like right here, Bible scholars say, this is where the shadow of the cross first falls upon Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Right here is the first time that the religious officials realize that they're not just dealing with a faith healer, that they're not just dealing with a good moral example, that they're not just dealing with somebody who's a good teacher. No, they're dealing with someone who claimed to be God, who claimed to be the divine judge, who claimed to have authority on earth and in heaven to forgive sins. Right here in Capernaum, in this house, Jesus is sealing his fate. Right here, he's setting into motion the events that will eventually cost him his life. Right here, he's beginning his march to the cross. And church, it would have been so easy for Jesus merely to heal this man and move on. Right Then this scene would have been just like any of the other scenes we've seen already in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' reputation would have grown and grown a bit, and you know, he would have attracted more and more of a crowd, but Jesus would not have sentenced himself to death. Yet the thing we have to realize about our Jesus is that he's never willing to settle. Even though it cost him his life, he will not settle for dealing with an asthma attack when there's a severed artery in the room. 
He won't settle for dealing with paralysis when there is forgiveness of sins to be offered, even though that cost him his life. Right? This is the stunning truth about our Lord. He is both able and willing to meet our deepest need. He's both able and willing to meet our deepest need. As the Son of Man, he has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's the only one who has that authority. But as our gracious Savior, right, he's willing to go to the cross to just satisfy the penalty that our sins deserved. He's willing to endure the judgment that our sins required. He's willing to pay the price demanded by our iniquity. He's willing and he's able to deal with the problem of our sin, to meet our deepest need. Does that not stun you? I wonder if you have brought to Jesus, truly brought to him, your deepest need. Here's my fear as we talk about these things this morning. My fear is that we would talk about the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, that we would talk about Jesus as the Son of Man, the divine judge of the universe, and that we would be underwhelmed and unimpressed by what Jesus was willing and able to do for us. I fear that we might even be discontent with Jesus. I mean, I hope you'll examine your heart this morning. Ask yourself, if Jesus never answered another one of your prayers, would you still trust him? Would you still follow him? Would you still worship him? If Jesus ripped from your hands the things that are most important to you in this life, would you still trust him? Would you still follow him? Would you still worship him? If Jesus unleashed a Job-like, hell-on-earth kind of experience in your life, if he took away everything that you cherished, if he broke you open and spilled your blood in every which way, if every one of your earthly desires came up empty, would you still trust him? Would you still follow him? Would you still worship him? I mean, I hope you'll hear me this morning. Like, that's the natural wiring of our human hearts, right? We want Jesus, but we want to use Jesus to get the other things that we desire. We want to use Jesus for the blessings that we expect he will give to us. We want to use Jesus so that we can have a happy marriage. We want to use Jesus so that our children don't grow up to be murderers. We want to use Jesus so that we can live quiet and respectable lives. We want to use Jesus so that we can have peace. Those are the things that we want. We don't really want Jesus, just the stuff that we think Jesus might do for us. We're paralyzed, and we come to Jesus hoping that he'll heal us. But here's how gracious our Jesus is. Even when we come to him for what we want, he gives us what we really need. In other words, he gives us himself. You see, all of our longings in life, 
they are really just disguised longings for Jesus. We can long for the approval of people, but what we're really longing for when we want people to like us is we long for the approval of our Heavenly Father in eternity, an approval that can only come when Jesus, the Son of Man, forgives our sins and grants us citizenship in his eternal heavenly kingdom. We can long for comfort in this life, but what we're really wanting for is the assurance that our lives will be sheltered from pain and turmoil. And Jesus, he never promises his people that they'll be spared from pain and turmoil in this life, but he does promise that by his power, he will guard his people and keep us for an eternal, imperishable, and unfading heavenly inheritance. He'll shelter us unto glory, in other words. And we can long for control, for power over our lives. But what we really want is the opportunity to make ourselves happy. And Jesus says that in this life, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. But he says, when you do that, he will lead you to the right hand of the Father, where there are eternal pleasures forevermore. You see, all of our other longings in life, they are really just disguised longings for him. Which means that when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's giving us what we really need, which is ultimately what we really want. Even if he gives us nothing else, he's giving us what we long for the most. Do you know this Jesus as your Savior? Have you entrusted your soul to the Son of Man who will one day come again to judge the living and the dead, but who has already offered his life as the just payment of your sin. Have you brought to Jesus, truly brought to him, your deepest need? Church, this morning, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Before we approach the table of Holy Communion, I want us just to linger for a moment together in the presence of the Lord. We want to use this time and space to to confess the ways that we have used Jesus to get the other things that we desire. And then we want to praise Jesus for the fact that he's still met our deepest needs. Even when we've merely come to him for what we want, He's still given us what we truly needed. He forgives our sins. And so we'll put on the screen behind me some questions that are just intended to lead all of us in a time of confession and prayer. And after a few moments of quiet, I'll return and I'll prepare us further for our celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning.